0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station.
1: What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? 7am you're listening to the morning run on a friday the 12th of may which means you're also listening to wtf or what's the focus our weekly roundup show of the top stories as well as other news tidbits that you may have missed i'm shazana Mukhtar with mark tan and philip c here to usher in the week and gentlemen tell me one thing that you're looking forward to about the weekend Well,
2: for me, it's actually sleep.
1: (laughs) (laughs) As always, right?
2: But I tell you what I'm also looking forward to is unpacking what are going to be the results because next week, from an electoral standpoint, there are going to be two watershed elections taking place, one in Thailand and one in Turkey.
1: Now, before we get into those two elections, let's just quickly recap. Uh, Let's catch up on what's been happening in other parts of ASEAN. So earlier this morning, we were discussing the outcome of the ASEAN Summit in Labuan Bajo, Indonesia. So while the politicians and bureaucrats of the region we're talking shop, we actually had our athletes congregating over in Cambodia for the Sea Games. So
0: the tournament is now, right now, it's a midway point. And in terms of the medals tally, Malaysia is ranked 7 with 105 medals won to date and 24 of them being gold. So I'm looking at the plus side of things. I want to mention two particular gold medalists that we have. The first one being Malaysia winning the first women's golf event at the ASEAN SEA Games, right? So 15-year-old Eng Jing Xuan made history by becoming the first woman golfer to win the SEA Games goal. And she beat the the favourite of the tournament, who's also the current Asia-Pacific amateur champion, uh, Elia Galitsky from Thailand. So Malaysia in this segment actually won both gold and bronze. The bronze being won by Malaysian Feng Ziyu. Another one that uh, I thought was great was um, the 24 year wait ended for Malaysia in the Sea Games women's 400 meter race. Shireen Samson right won the 400 meter final by clocking a time of 53.53 seconds. Now, if you think carefully, why does her name sound so familiar? Because her parents, Josephine Mary Singraya and Samson Vollaboy, were both former runners and former winner winners for the country themselves.
2: Oh, it runs in the blood. It runs in the blood, evidently, in this case here. But it's interesting, right, when you take a macro standpoint, 25 golds, 32 silver, 15 bonds. is that a really good number? Because you made two very interesting references. It's seventh in the ranking, which for me is a red alert. And if you recall, I think our our sports minister had actually planned and said we should be targeting 40 goals, 37 silver and 64 bronze. And based on where I'm seeing from the trajectory, we're not near that number, are we?
1: Indeed. I mean, it is quite disappointing, I suppose, if you want to take a look at the target that we have, 40 goals and where we stand at the moment. I do remember that early on in the games, uh, there was a particular upset with our badminton team. I think it did result in some resignations from the Badminton Association of Malaysia. Um, so again, I think There are questions as to how much is Malaysia investing in sporting talent and training, Mm. because technically in the Sea Games, I suppose because of all that we've put into it, it is supposed to be an arena for us to shine. Yeah, and we're not quite doing that.
0: Correct. And that resignation came halfway through the tournament. So usually, what will happen is you go, you know, you either achieve your goals or you don't, and then you resign after the tournament. But in this case, the CEO Michelle Chai resigned after Malaysia's team had
2: lost to the Philippines. Well, I think that's a very interesting point where you said it's an opportunity for Malaysia to shine. And if you look at the t- medal table, table tally, it's interesting, right? We're talking about hundreds of medals in contention for every country. Even Vietnam, number one, has 186 medals, Cambodia, 155. It also kind of makes a sense of mockery a bit that Sea Games is like this games for everybody because there's thousands of medals at stake so everybody should be able to win something in the process
1: I guess with the Sea Games there's that little bit of idiosyncrasy right the yeah. fact is that the host country gets to introduce what kind of events they want and typically the host will then uh what do you say, way up or load up the events calendar with uh, to sports. their advantage, exactly. Right? So, for example, I think in this Cambodian games, there's a type of Cambodian chess that's also being played as an event. Uh, which, of course, I'm sure the Cambodians will win. Uh, hence, beefing up their uh, their their gold tally.
2: And that's why Cambodia has 155 medals and 56 goals. You know, what? we need to have a sport called Business Talk Radio.
1: <laughs> I don't think that's a sport, Phil. I I really would not. Uh, I, I let's make it happen make that a contention <laughs> that business radio clubs <laughs> is a sport but can I just mention a little bit of a fun fact in terms of I think in the sea games you also see just the clashes that happen within countries in our yeah. region and I'm referring to um, the sport of Muay Thai which in this games is being called Kun Khmer as it is in Cambodia I think the Thai team has actually boycotted this event because they don't agree with the references being used to it and it reminds me of how Indonesia and Malaysia often squabble over food terminology as well I think the fact is that ASEAN is so rich, but we are so interconnected and have a lot of similarities. Uh, Same but different in many ways. Like
2: Batik, Rendang and chicken rice versus Singapore.
1: Indeed. Okay, so from the C Games, let's turn our attention to the elections that you mentioned, Phil, because as you said, two countries beginning with the letter T coincidentally will be holding elections on Sunday. In Turkey, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is facing the test of his life as he fights for re-election to a third term.
2: I think this election is really, really important because, you know, Recep type Erdogan has been in power for nearly 20 years, since 2003. And the polls are showing that the election is really on a knife edge. If you look at the results, it is a very consequential election because Turkey is also very strategic. It's really has been a key player in the negotiations in the Russian-Ukraine conflict. It's basically the bridge between Europe and Asia. But it's also facing many issues, right? And the biggest issue, of course, is economic. Think about it. Inflation there has at one point it peaked eighty six percent last year,
1: and that's really no thanks to President Erdogan's policies. yeah he has a very yeah. uh, curious uh, sense of economic policy. He's kept inflation uh, not inflation rates I'm sorry interest rates um artificially low um which hasn't really helped inflation
2: yeah because he's a very different view that of the correlation between inflation and interest rates. So I think that's also an issue here and that's why you see the numbers. Reflect in the polls.
1: And don't forget that uh, Turkey has uh, just experienced devastating earthquakes uh, this year, which have also impacted um, how perceptions of uh, Erdogan's government are. Uh, so I do think that uh, is giving an edge to the opposition candidate. I think the frontrunner is Kemal Kiri. Kilic uh, Daroglu, he's the current front-runner who could actually pip uh, Erdogan in these first-round elections. Uh, Turkey, just like uh, France, had runoff elections. So depending on how much votes they get, they mm. may have to do a second round of presidential elections a little later.
0: Correct. So the re- recent polls by Konda shows that the opposition has a 5.6% lead you know, over Erdogan, right? And uh, earlier on this week, we had spoken to Dr. James Dorsey, and we were talking about their version of Undi 18, the first-time voters that will make up 8% of the Turkish electorate, right? And their votes could be very decisive. So young people in Turkey, you know, who are not only facing inflation, but jobs are difficult to find. So where would they go, you know, in this election?
2: And it is bread-butter issues, because the example here was that, you know, people keep on creating this analogy that the price of onions has risen tenfold in in two years. But Mark, you made a very interesting point about the power of the youth vote, because that's also being in contention in the other election that we're going to have a discussion with which is Thailand. And that's why you're seeing so much challenge to the current parties led by the General Prayuth Chan Ocha and also by Thaksin Shinawat with the Move Forward Party, which is becoming to be increasingly dominated by youth members as well.
1: I mean, Thaksin Shinawat is the Pew Thai Party. The the Move Forward Party is another another party that is gaining a lot of uh, traction with the youth. Uh, But the Pew Thai Party is being led at the moment, uh, or the candidate, Prime Minister candidate for the uh, Pheu Thai Party is the daughter, the youngest daughter of Thaksin Shinawat, Petongtorn Shinawat. She's only thirty six, and I think she's been a very admired figure on the campaign trail because she was doing so while uh, pregnant, um, mm. and she just gave birth like a, a week ago. So she has been, uh, you know, grappling both with that and also trying to win votes uh, during this election season.
2: But as you say, the odds are stacked up against them in this specific case in Thailand because even though the polls are showing that they have a very healthy lead, the structure of the Senate and also the National Assembly makes it very hard for them to basically take control of government because they need 375 seats or even 75% of the seats to be able to take power.
1: Indeed. So uh, they are really banking on gal- getting that surge of support, right? Maybe they may even th- consider, or moving forward party, will they consider joining forces in order to get that majority in the parliament? Uh, these are all things that uh, we need to pay attention to as the elections unfold. If you want a little bit of a preview, we did speak to James Gomez of the Asia Centre for his observations in the lead-up to the polls in Thailand. You can look up the podcast, Thailand heading to the polls, but will there be a clear winner? That's on the BFM app or on our website. Now it's 9.46am, let's take a quick break for some messages. We'll come back with more stories from the week. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. 9.48am, you are listening to The Morning Run with Shazana, Mark and Philip. This is WTF or What's the Focus, our weekly recap show. We're looking back at some of the stories that we've discussed throughout the week. Now, earlier this morning, we spoke to Anand Raj, Secretary of the Malaysian Bar, on the controversy over the MACC's probe into Justice Mohamed Nazlan, just the fallout that's come from this investigation which first came to light last year with the Bar uh, coming up with a resolution or series of resolutions recently um, sort of criticising the Attorney-General, the Minister for Law, uh, as well as the MACC for this conduct. Uh, keeping with that anti-corruption theme, we actually opened the week with the discussion on the crony capitalism index where Malaysia actually has a pride of place in the rankings.
2: Well, yes, I think if you look at the rankings, uh, out of 43 countries, Russia is number one, Czech Republic, and then we have. We are third, I think, uh, if you look at Malaysia. And Singapore is number four.
1: Indeed. So we had a conversation with Pushpan Murugia of C4 earlier this week uh, to just talk about uh, how crony capitalism features in our economy, right? And I think uh, what came out this week or just uh, just a day or two ago is the appointment of... political appointments to certain statutory bodies, I think developments like this uh, don't, how to say, detract from, I guess, perceptions of crony capitalism uh, existing in our economy.
0: So Berset came up very strongly against appointments calling abuse of trust to the public, right? So the announcement was made by Ministerial Mohamed Sabu, who's also Amana president, and there were three appointees from Amana, one from PKL and one from DAP. So not to split heads, but this kind of goes back against what Prime Minister Toh Street, Anwar Ibrahim had pledged earlier on to say that there will be no political appointments in cushy government-linked company positions. Uh, but is there a difference between a GLC and a statutory body? Is there where they're drawing the lines? I don't know.
1: I mean, I guess there are questions. the The fact is uh, there have been Constant calls for more transparency, right? And Mm. I think uh, there's sort of wide acknowledgement that, okay, there may need to be political appointees, but we need to make sure that those are based on merit and that they are the right people to the job, whether it's a statutory body, uh, more so a statutory body. GLC, I think there's definitely more argument for uh, corporate standards to be adhered to for sure.
2: And the underlying question is, where is the governance structure in evaluating these appointments? I think that's also one of the biggest issues, that you make it as a political appointment, but is there a process for someone to vet, screen, assess, and detail out that? That's why, you know, PAC committees are very important to make these appointments. Even if you look at the US, when someone appoints someone, they go through the scrutiny of boards, governance, to to vet and decide whether or not these appointments... Pass muster.
1: Many of the appointments in government actually go through Congress, so I feel like there could be a a reasonable argument to be made that perhaps we should also emulate that uh, procedure in order to ensure that we do have the best person, the right person Mm. for these uh, important positions, Mm. right?
2: And I think one of the biggest challenges is that it's very hard sometimes to, you know, identify or put a hold to the definition of cronyism. Corruption is a bit clearer, perhaps, you know, and that's why it's very hard, I think, sometimes to classify someone as a crony or not. I think that's one of the biggest issues but if you put the governance in place, you remove all doubt.
1: Indeed.
0: So, earlier this week, when Pushman Murgat talked to us, he was referencing Singapore when he asked him how is Singapore ranked fourth in yeah. this crony capitalism, yep. right? And he brought up the point that all these GLC-linked companies to master, they have very strong internal corporate governance structure to make sure those appointments... Are worth it.
2: And what I think is very interesting is that, you know, there's a whole discussion also about how do you how do these kleptocrats uh, essentially, um, I think, launder these kickbacks. And a lot of it actually is through anonymous purchases of foreign real estate.
1: Uh-huh. So
2: what I think is very interesting is that there's a lot of effort, by, especially in Russia, people call London, London grad, because a lot of the money is siphoned out to UK, Dubai, even Singapore, right? But sometimes it's very hard to have all these check and balances. So I think the question is also where do you... Where are you able to also put a stop to all this flow of funds? And a lot of it is basically being funneled to all these property purchases as well.
0: And the other point is, where is our political donation fund bill, which was touted uh, during the elections, right, uh, to make all these donations more transparent?
1: All right. And I think this is definitely going to be a conversation that we will be revisiting again and again. Uh, but another issue of interest over the week has been EPF and retirement. Uh, there's been a lot of headlines concerning um, EPF, the investment strategy for EPF, and also discussions on um we know what should be the retirement age that qualifies for EPF?
0: So there's been a proposal to raise the retirement age up to sixty five. I mean, only if the employee wishes to go at sixty five. But given the EPF savings that we all have right now that most of us will not be able to retire when we hit fifty five years, right? Um, I think working to 65 may not be an option, right? Uh, It may be mandatory for us to do it.
2: I think mandatory means you want to do it. And I think what is very interesting here is that the employees, I hear a larger proportion want actually to work beyond 65, beyond their means, they want to basically earn an income because of the the, the current financial situation they're in. Do employers want that? I think that's also one of the biggest challenges, right? Do employers want that retirement age to take place? Because perhaps they want the attrition to come. Through, so that they can inject younger, cheaper talent into the system. Right. So. I'm actually not clear what where does it land, you know? Is it favourable to whose side, right? right? Because if I was also to wear the employee mindset, I also don't mind experienced people to also help govern because they're also able, requires less training, less experience, less, but they're probably more expensive. So that's one of the biggest debates I'm having in my mind.
1: Speaking of more expensive, I mean, in conjunction with Labor Day, there was also the proposal to raise uh, employers' contribution to EPF yeah. from 13% to 20%. And That's just a proposal on this stage. Uh, The Prime Minister did say that Cabinet may consider this, but I think it did generate also a lot of debate on whether uh, Malaysian businesses are able to actually cope with that rise in cost if it comes through.
2: And so it will be hard if you're basically... Essentially, if you're, of course, longer in the employment system, you're going to be paid more. So naturally, people will be disincentivized to also retain older staff. I think that's also one of the biggest concerns I have, especially with technology AI coming through. Mm. How much, you know, do you really need to retain older employees? But also you could say on the flip side, why do I need to train young people if I have AI available? And why don't I just make do with my experienced people and get them to double head, triple head with the work they have? Right. So I think it's a conundrum either way with technological advancements taking place.
0: Yeah. So AI is expected to replace 80% of the existing jobs today available in to the marketplace. So I think the onus is also very much on employees to upskill themselves and increase their own productivity levels, mm-hmm. right? Because the businessman is always going to look at cost versus productivity gains,
1: Indeed. Uh, so again, I, I, the way my takeaway from this is that whenever you want to change a policy or you want to affect a certain, when you look when you tweak one part of the system, you're going to have to look at the, at the effects on the rest of the part of the system. Like yeah. you said, um, and I think a, one, another EPF headline from the week that I just wanted to bring up was also the discussion on how EPF should. Um, align its investment portfolio, right? Mm. Because the uh, Prime Minister, Dr. Sri Anwar Ibrahim, did make the suggestion, or was it a demand? Was it an instruction? I'm not sure. <laughs> but he did say that uh, he would like to see EPF uh, focus more on domestic investments, raising its uh, d- in- a domestic investment portfolio to 70%. Yes. And that has caused um, debate as well, because every... I mean, the, I think the evidence points that a lot of the returns come from overseas investments. Correct. I think
0: about 45% of the returns from EPF comes from overseas investment, which shows a better rate of return for the contributors.
2: Absolutely. So the return on investment for foreign investments is much higher. So if you're asking EPF to rethink its allocation process, are you also asking them to rethink their mandate and the return of investments they deliver to the retirees then?
1: That's right. Because the Prime Minister said that uh, he wanted this, I guess, reallocation for development, right? To help with the in its strategic development. But is that the focus of EPF? How do you compromise
2: retirement funds then?
1: Right. Uh, We did speak to P. Gunasegaram, independent business writer, on developments regarding EPF. Uh, He has a lot of thoughts on that. There was also the announcement by the Prime Minister that there will be no more EPF withdrawals. Um, So Mm. I think it's also worth seeing whether he can hold that line moving forward. Uh, You can look up the discussion that we had with P. uh, P. Gunasegaram on our podcast. Look up EPF Savings for Retirement, not for anything else. Uh, It is 9.57 in the morning. I think we're coming up to the 10 a.m. News Bulletin. That's all we have for WTF this week. Happy weekend, everyone. Stay tuned for the 10 a.m. News Bulletin coming up next. BFM 89.9.
0: You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.